Now, growing up, sports was pretty important uh, for me. My brother and, and I, uh, we actually, my brothers and I, we all played sports. Uh, Tyler is here. Caleb is here. I'm glad they're here. Uh, Tyler and I, it was all baseball. Caleb got to choose his own. He got to do basketball more. But, um, you know, every season in baseball, there was a big question at the beginning, and it was basically, what is the coach going to be like? Is the coach going to be easygoing and let us kind of just have fun hitting the ball at practice? Or is he going to be, you know, wanting us to run? And is he a yeller? Is he not? Is, is he going to teach us stuff or just kind of sit back because, you know, he was a parent that got roped into doing it who didn't really want to do it? Uh, those kind of things. So let me see a show of hands. How many of you played sports at some point in your life? Okay. Now, now keep your hand up if you had a good coach. Anybody have a good coach? Okay. Now, now let me see. Who, who of you have had bad coaches? Okay. Some of, some of you are like, your hands are still up. You have known the both, right? Uh, there's good coaches and there's bad coaches. There's those who are really there to, to teach and to work hard and to help you get better. Um, and then there's bad coaches who... Uh, you, you know, either they're lazy or they just think it's their lot in life to tear everybody down to where they're only an inch off the ground. I remember um, this was a funny story. I think this was junior varsity football, but um, my, my friend Tucker Rodifer was playing tight end and in practice. So he wasn't in a game, but he caught a very short pass and he was supposed to run with it. And Tucker was tall and he was well built, but he was not very well coordinated. We'll just say that. And so he caught the ball, but he didn't make it very far before he was tackled. And the coach said, Rodifer, you look like a baby calf on ice. And I just never forget that. You look like a baby calf on ice. Um, I, I had it happen to me once. Actually, I made the varsity baseball team here at Episcopal High School in Jacksonville, Florida. And then right after I made the team, me and three others, my, my friends, we, uh, the coach called us over and sat us down. And he said, all right, you made the team, but you're not very good. So don't expect to play unless somebody else gets hurt. Work hard, but don't expect to play. Now, now talk about a motivator, you know, for a junior in high school. Work hard, but you're not going to play. I, I mean, it, those, those two things uh, kind of counterbalanced each other there. So uh, when I talk about Christian coaching, you, you probably got some idea in your minds of what a coach does. You know, yeah, well, a coach yells at me and makes me run, or, or a coach makes me do wind sprints, or whatever it is. But what does a coach do for Christians? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. In this series, we've said that there are two words from the resurrected Jesus that define the life of the Christian. First is the word disciple. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. That means every Christian is following Jesus, and you are doing that by trusting Jesus alone for salvation, by learning about God and yourself from the Bible, by growing to be more like Jesus, and by serving others in love. But you're not just a disciple. You're not just a follower of Jesus. You're also a discipler. We put that R on the end to say a discipler is when you're helping someone else follow Jesus. And we've talked about how you help people follow Jesus by loving them with the love you've received from God, by teaching the Bible, by modeling Christ-like character. And today, we're going to talk about it by coaching 
someone to Christian maturity. This series is based on a very helpful little book. It's a little blue book called Discipling by Pastor Mark Dever out of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. I think there are still a few copies in our little lending library out here. If you're the reader who wants to learn more, please feel free to grab a copy and read more. But essentially, it all boils down to this. A disciple trusts, learns, grows, and serves. A discipler loves teaches, models, and coaches. And today we're finishing by talking about the final pair. So a disciple serves and a discipler coaches. Let's listen as we go with Paul. This is going to be his final encounter with the church at Ephesus. Now Paul had spent three years in Ephesus uh, in, in Asia and Paul is on his way to Jerusalem where eventually he'll be arrested and put in prison and hauled off to Rome. And so this is the final time the Holy Spirit has revealed to Paul that this is probably going to be the last time he sees these people he cares about so much, uh, this side of heaven. And so uh, I invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as we read Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17, and we listen to what is so important for Paul to pass on to these Christians before he goes to Jerusalem. God's word says, Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. And all things I have shown you 
that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he'd finished saying these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this just sweet time we get to hear. As Paul knows that his time on this earth was short, and he had these important words for Christians he loved. I pray that you help us to listen well. Holy Spirit, let this be about Jesus and about following him well. And I ask that you would use the Bible today to bless our hearts individually and collectively as Redemption Church. And I ask this, Jesus, please, in your name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, first I want to zoom in on this story of finishing well for a gospel coach. And look with me back at verses 18 and 19. There it said, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving. If you have a pen and you're an underliner, you can underline that word serving. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Okay, so Paul reminds the Ephesian Christians of how he behaved among them. Like, what was his program? We know that his program was to share the gospel. We got that. Paul was a missionary par excellence, called by the risen Jesus on that road to Damascus, and Paul went town by town sharing the good news. But interestingly... When Paul chooses here near the end of his life to remind the Ephesians of what he did among them, he chooses a different word. He doesn't say, hey, remember how I evangelized you all or remember how I powerfully preached to you all. He says, how I served you. And it's a curious word because it's kind of softened in English a little bit. The word is actually the verb for slave. So it would be how I enslaved myself to you. It's just kind of a jarring image, right? Um, wait, 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 Paul, you became like a slave to them? I mean, that's, that is an ugly word. Why would you use a word like that? So we, we have to ask the Bible, what did it mean when Paul said that he served them? What does service look like? So the point I hope we get from Acts 20, right off the bat, is that Christians serve one another in the local church. And I want us to catch the flavor of this word this morning. Uh, We're going to look at it the three ways Paul described it. He said, with all humility, that's number one, with tears, that's number two, and with trials, that's number three. So the three aspects of service are with humility, with tears, and with trials. First, with humility. When Christians serve one another, it's not about glorifying ourselves. It's not about, you know, getting an award or an accolade or a pat on the back or, or making ourselves look big, right? It, it, it's about Jesus. I mean, you think about it. 
The only reason we know each other, apart from if we are blood family, is because of Jesus Christ. The only reason that we get to be a church gathered on a Sunday morning, the morning Jesus rose from the dead, is because of Jesus Christ. Everything that we have, including the opportunity to serve one another, comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Paul argues to the Corinthians when he says, Because of him, that is because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul's point is, you don't have nothing without Jesus. So when you serve, make sure that it's to the glory of the name of Jesus. If my serving is to get praise for me, something is off. Now, everybody I think knows that. But do you ever catch yourself getting just a little jealous of maybe when somebody else at church gets praised and you're like, whoa, why didn't I get that praise? Or, or maybe when somebody else does a good job at something and you just, I, I could have done that better. Christian, we're just here serving Jesus. The point is that his name gets made great. When you feel that little twinge of jealousy based on serving, ask God to flip your heart to giving praise to Jesus. Because everything I have, let's say, let's say you are really good at that thing. Well, who made you really good at that thing, right? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who gives gifts to serve the body of the church. So let's, let's just make much of Jesus. We serve with all humility. Next, he says, serve with tears. That's out of verse 19 as well. Paul mentioned tears another time. He said in verse 31, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And this passage almost drips with tears because at the very end, it said that there was much weeping because Paul had said that they would never see his face again. And so we move from service with humility to service with tears. Now these tears, I mean, it could have been um, the, the kind of tears of anguish and sorrow, but I think this, this tears, when, when you're sorrowful at a departing, think about this, are you more sorrowful if you're leaving someone you love and care about or sorrowful if you're leaving somebody you don't really love and don't really care about? Right? Like, he's sorrowful because he loved them so much. He had grown such an affection for these Christian brothers and sisters. And so these tears imply a genuine, loving affection. So Paul's service wasn't carefree. He didn't just come in and preach well and kind of wash his hands and pack up and go. No, no, no. He had built relationships with these Christians. He'd been in their homes. He knew them. He knew the marriages, the children. He had served them tirelessly, not just as a hard worker, but as a caring brother in Christ. And I think that's a model for all Christian service. You know, sometimes it's easy, especially if you're kind of a doer like me, to just say, okay, I got a task to do. I'm going to go get it done. And, and, and you can kind of get blinders on and, and you, you miss the people around you. Well, well, Christian service is different from working a job. 
Christian service not only implies humility because it's for the glory of Jesus, but it implies we're about loving one another. And so if, if along the way, the service puts you farther away from people in this church, then the service has gotten off base. It's supposed to draw you closer to one another, to build this affection so that if for some reason God calls you on, say you're moving away from Jacksonville, Florida, like I, I hope it's hard to leave Redemption Church because of the love that has grown here, because of the relationships that have grown here. Christian service should involve tears because of loving affection that has grown. And then he says also in verse 19, with trials. So with humility, with tears, and with trials. Now, in Ephesus, uh, Paul had run into some difficulties. Uh, first, right off the bat, you know, when he did his thing of going to the synagogue, there were some Jews who opposed him like they always did. But it all came to a head one night when there was a riot. Paul had had the audacity to preach in a pagan city that there's only one God and that any God formed by hands is not a God, it's just an idol. Well, Ephesus was known for a particular goddess named Artemis of the Ephesians. Maybe a meteorite had fallen and they kind of worshiped that as a God. I don't know. But Paul's biblical preaching had really ruffled the feathers of the people who made little statues of Artemis and made a living selling that as a god. Well, this led to a full-on riot where they were hunting for Paul's life. In fact, they shouted for hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Until finally, a town clerk showed up and threatened to arrest all the rioters if they didn't disband and just take the matter legally in court. So when Paul reminds the Ephesian elders, hey, remember, my service to you was with humility, with tears and trials, no doubt he has a night like, great as Artemis of the Ephesians in mind, where they had to hide Paul for his life. I hope that your service at Redemption Church does not result in mob violence, right? That's not what I hope for anyone. But it would be foolish not to expect that when you purpose to serve Jesus with humility, to make much of his name, with tears, growing in affection for Christians, that it won't also come with trials. And trials can take a few different forms. First off, Satan hates Christians glorifying Jesus by serving in the local church. Second, I think there is perhaps nothing more compelling to a lost world than Christians who are obsessed with Jesus and caring for one another. So much so that some are going to be compelled to investigate and others are going to be quite frustrated with us. But I promise you a third form of trial that will come, and that is, as God leads you to be a part and invest in Redemption Church, someone at some point, maybe this pastor right here, is going to sin against you. Because the only sinless person in history is Jesus. And while we are forgiven, while we are made new, we are not sinless. And so when you join a church, you're joining a group of redeemed but still sinful people. And so 
the trial may come the first time that somebody says something that's not very nice to you. Now, should they have said that? No, they shouldn't. But the question is, how are you going to respond? Well, Paul gives us an example. He kept going with them. His affection grew past the trials. I think there's this sad tendency among American Christians today that the first time something happens in a church they don't like, they just leave and go somewhere else. And you know, I get it, right? There's probably, if we were to raise hands, probably every single Christian in this room could testify that they have been hurt by another Christian in a church, right? I could. And, and, and that doesn't justify the sin that was done against me, but I cannot repent for someone else's sin. My job is to respond to it the way Jesus calls me to. So rather than just getting angry and leaving the church, rather than, than say, just doing that silent thing of I'm not going to deal with this anymore, I'm called to deal with that sin with compassion, with forgiveness, to where the love can grow and we can still be a family together. This is probably the hardest part of our Christian service, dealing with the trials. But I promise you, not only will this church be blessed, but your life will be blessed when you deal with Christians in love, even when we sin against each other. Now look down with me to verses 27 and 28. Paul has just described how we serve one another in the local church. Now he's going to shift into coaching. He says there, I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's just another word for pastors. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Do you hear that twice in verses 27 and 28? It mentions blood. I mean, this is a, a bloody passage. And then part of this, I think, is because Paul has in his mind that he might be going to his death, which eventually he will be martyred. But this phrase, I'm innocent of the blood of all, actually comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Ezekiel 33. There, the prophet Ezekiel is likened in his prophetic role to a watchman in a city. And I'm going to have the verses up here just because it's, it's helpful to see. And I want to read them to you. But um, this is a description of a Christian leader, a, a watchman in a city. Listen to this. He says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people. And say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person has taken away his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. 
Ezekiel was called to be the prophet of the Lord, and he had one big job, warn the people to turn back to the Lord. Paul says, I'm innocent of your blood because like a watchman on a city tower, I have warned you and given you every opportunity to be right with God. Now, what's the warning that a pastor gives? I mean, uh, the, the church isn't being broken into or kick, the doors kicked down, you know, stuff like that. The warning is that one day when we die, we will all face a holy God. And as sinners, we cannot face him alone. We will suffer forever in a place called hell for our sins. That's the warning. Every single person, this pastor included, is what we would face unless we have a sinless Savior. The only way to be right with God is by faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That is the warning that Paul over and over again gave the Ephesians. And he did so so thoroughly that he could say, guys, I'm innocent of your blood. If you decide to ignore the warning, that's on you. But I have given you every opportunity to get right with God. Martin Luther said a very similar thing. This is what he said. I will strive as in the presence of Christ my judge that no man may be able to throw upon me the blame of his own unbelief and ignorance of the truth. That's why he preached tirelessly. That's why Paul preached tirelessly. He did not want anyone to say, Paul, you never told me that. You never never told me how to be right with God. You, you, You didn't tell me what I needed to do to turn my life over to Jesus. No, Paul said, I told you. It's now up to you. And as a coach... Paul is now handing the baton off to the Ephesian Christians. Guys, I've shown you how to care for this church. It's your turn. Here's the baton. You go ahead and lead. Now, here's the point. Christian coaches help Christians serve the church with the right focus. Paul's going to give three practical ways that he is coaching the Christians. And I'd say this is an area, if you've been in the church for a while, you've probably, um, you might have known one or two great mentors. Listen up, because some of you, I think, could make excellent mentors or coaches. And this is what a coach does. First, pay careful attention. Pay careful attention. That's right what it says at the beginning of verse 28. This is Paul showing them how to coach. Uh, any, any baseball players in here? Anybody play baseball? Okay, one. All right, all right, we got you. I got you. I see, see two. Okay, every coach in baseball at some point says, keep your eye on the what? Keep your eye on the ball. Now, imagine if the coach meant that literally. Like at the end of the game, everybody would walk out with black eyes. Like, like it would not work if he literally meant keep your eye on that ball. But why does he say that? Why, why does the coach say keep your eye on the ball? Well, because there's no game without the ball. The game totally hinges on what happens with the ball. Like if I'm in the outfield, and I've got my glove, and i got my cleats, and I'm ready to go, and I'm just out there, and, and there's no ball? Well, then there's no game. I mean, I, I'm literally just kind of 
out there in tights. I mean, it's weird. The only thing happens when the ball moves. That's why you keep your eye on the ball, because the whole game is about the ball. In church, the whole game is about God and people. That's the game. God and people. God and people. It's not about this building. It's not about uh, the, the strategies we come up with. The game is about God and people. That's why he says, pay careful attention. And the first person we pay careful attention to is right here. Because we've got to guard ourselves and our own walk with the Lord. So a coach, a Christian coach, asks himself first, how is my walk going with Jesus? A Christian coach asks herself, am I serving Jesus with joy? And then, second, a coach watches others. Uh, Questions might come up like, am I growing in affection for others in the church? Or are you growing in affection for others at the church? If you're going to coach someone, to serve Jesus with joy, this is a very important question to talk about. Hey, when you're serving at church, does it help you love people more? Because if not, something's off. Either you're serving, say, out of duty, maybe it's not in the place of your gifting and you're kind of, you know, uh, forced into serving that way even though you didn't want to and you've grown a little bitter over it. Or maybe, you know, you've gotten kind of so tunnel vision on doing the task, you're missing the people around you. But coaches, asking your Christian brothers and sisters a question like, are you growing in joy in your service? can be a very powerful question. Ask that question and then let them talk. Let them talk about their service. If you want to help someone serve, you need to be ready to coach them by reminding them to pay careful attention to people, both their own walk with Christ and the people around them. Second, again, from verse 28, uh, care for the church. Care for the church. That word that's used in the ESV, care, is literally shepherd. Um, So it says care for the church. It's literally shepherd the church. And uh, in Hierarchy, Jesus is the great shepherd. There are under shepherds or pastors or overseers in a church. But it's such a great word because if you're a Christian in a church, you are also called to care for your fellow Christians. That doesn't mean you have to have a master's of divinity from a seminary and that you're going to be called upon to stand up and preach in front of everybody. But what's going on in the lives of the people in the pews next to you should matter to you. Like if you can show up to a church for years and not know what's going on in the lives of people around you, something's off. You should care for the people around you. So a coach cares for people or shepherds them by asking questions like, well, is is your walk helping you to grow in your love for Christ Jesus? In what ways... Could you better care for people and how you're serving God? These are great questions a coach can ask and help someone to serve better. Not only does Paul coach them by saying, pay careful attention to yourselves and shepherd the flock, 
He reminds them that the church is obtained with Jesus' blood. He actually does it twice. He says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And then he says that the church was obtained with Jesus' own blood. He reminds them of these things twice because every coach knows one of the biggest tasks is to help Christians not lose focus that this is Jesus' church. When, when it becomes my church to do my things, to make my kingdom, it's gotten off. I'm going to get bitter. I'm going to get frustrated with people. Things are not going to get done the way I want. And, and I'm going to have kind of a little Christian hissy fit. Like it, it's just not going to be the right thing. There's not going to be joy. There's not going to be growing affection. But when I remember that this is Jesus' church obtained with Jesus' blood, it reminds me too that he's ultimately in charge. I'm not responsible for every single result here, and neither are you. This is Jesus' church. I can show up and serve faithfully and leave the results to him. When you are a Christian coach, you can ask questions like, has your service been for the glory of Jesus' name? Or has your service been to make sure you get noticed by other people? A good coach will walk people through questions like that. So far, Paul has reminded the Ephesian Christians of his service to them with humility, with tears, and with trials. And he's coached them to pay careful attention, to shepherd God's flock, and to remember that the church belongs to Jesus. As an aside, um, a mentor of mine taught me to pray that every Sunday morning I come to a church. Jesus, thank you for this church. Help me to remember that it's yours. It's a great prayer to pray when you're walking into church. This is your church, Jesus. I'm blessed to be a part of it. I want to look at one other passage from Paul, if you have your Bibles, you can flip over to Ephesians 4. Because Paul has answered several questions for us, but if you're a practical thinker, suppose you say, well, okay, but how actually do I serve? Or how actually do I coach? Well, we haven't actually answered those questions yet. And so Paul puts those in a letter to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 4. I'm just going to read three verses. Starting in verse 11, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We've seen that Christian leaders are servants. And this helps us because we know that this is not about making a name for ourselves. It's about making much of Jesus. We've seen that Christians are to serve by not only making a name for Jesus, but by caring for one another in the church. But, Paul comes in here and he kind of blows some of our images of how ministry works at a church out of the water. You see, because we might expect if we were hearing from Paul when he says, well, God gave the church 
pastors and teachers and evangelists. Uh, and, and he gave all these Christian leaders to do what? We might expect him to say, to do the work of ministry. But that's not what he said, right? Look back at Ephesians 4.12. He says, to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. So, so the way that a healthy church works is not that you just hire a few staff members and they do all the work and everybody kind of comes and watches and gets their fill and, and, and goes home. No, no, no. A healthy church works as those who are gifted by God to be pastors of the church. It's our job to equip every Christian to, to use the gifting the Holy Spirit has given every single one of you, if you're a believer in Jesus, to do the work of ministry. That is, this isn't a spectator sport, this Christian thing. You're not saved and then just told to sit. You're saved and given the Spirit of God living inside of you to do things that I never will. To, in, in ways that are just incredible with people that I may never even meet. My job is to come alongside you and to the best of my ability, boost you up, coach you well, equip you to thrive in the ministry Jesus Christ has called you to. The role of a pastor is to equip the saints for ministry. If me or the pastors of this church do all the work, then we have failed you. If we equip you to do the work of ministry, then we have succeeded. So here's the bottom line. Christian coaches equip Christians to serve God's church with joy. You might say, until when? Until the whole church is thriving to the glory of God. Paul gives us three untils that tell us we're going to be doing this work um, all the way till Jesus comes back. <laughs> but he first, he says, uh, Christian coaches are building up the church. And of course, that's a metaphor, right? He doesn't mean literally like uh, uh, cheerleaders were doing a pyramid. No, no, not, not physically stand on each other. Build up the church as in keep doing these things, servants. So keep coaching them to do these things, Christian coaches, until Jesus comes back. He says, until... Verse 13, we all attain to the unity of the faith. What in the world is the unity of the faith? The unity of the faith is when we all have that glorious and strong bond in the essentials of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When every single one of us trusts Jesus alone as our Savior and Lord wholeheartedly and without reservation... In other words, a discipler loves and a disciple trusts. You see, the coach keeps working, helping people by loving them and sharing the gospel in love so that this person becomes a follower of Jesus who trusts Jesus alone for salvation. Until we all attain to the unity of faith is another way of saying a discipler loves and a disciple trusts. Verse 13 says, of the knowledge of the Son of God. This implies what we said two weeks ago, that every Christian is a lifelong learner. That we're always growing in the things we know about God and ourselves from the Bible. Well, to grow in knowledge, it implies we need a teacher. Well, Christian leaders 
coach others to teach the Bible well because a discipler teaches and a disciple learns. Until what? Well, he also says, until we have achieved mature manhood. You see, it's not just growing in head knowledge. It's a change in character to where we grow to be more like Jesus Christ. And as Pastor Wesley did so well last week in reminding us, you know, it's not that we've arrived when we trust Jesus for salvation. It's we've begun this journey of growing in Christ likeness. And we need mentors. We need people in our lives who can model what that looks like. A very simple way you could think of this is like when you're first getting married, how helpful it is to know another married couple who's been married just a little longer who can help you as you navigate, say, that first year of marriage. Uh, and to know, yes, you had a fight, but that's not the end. You can persevere. It's okay. Christian leaders coach Christians to serve by modeling Christian character so that Christians can grow in Christ-likeness. You see what's going on? We've got a coach helping somebody serve. How are they serving? Well, now they're serving by, say, inviting people into their home or having lunch with them or doing these things to grow in friendship so that you can just do life together and see what the Christian life looks like. This is part of how that affection grows. A discipler modeling and a disciple being the one who grows in Christ-like character. So all of this is a description of how you coach and how you serve. But I, I want to um, wrap up and get very, very practical for a minute. I'm going to um, close in prayer and hand it off to Pastor Jeff to go back and get ready for baptism. Uh, but there's going to be some practical action steps for you as a result to this series. Every one of us is a discipler, and every one of us is a disciple. So I want you to begin praying about what's, what's my next step? Is, is there a, a step in terms of loving someone, or teaching someone, or modeling Christ-like character, or serving in the local church, or, or am I called to, to coach someone? Take a few minutes as Pastor Jeff leads you and just ask the Lord, okay, God, I've seen it in your word. You have this thing called the church. It's, it's more than just about me and my walk. I'm called to help someone walk with Jesus. What would you have me do? Pastor Jeff, you come and lead us in this time.